Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Think Tank with Cliff Waldman. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. It has been called the existential crisis of our time. And whether or not you think that is the case, after the summer that we had in this world, it is impossible to believe that everybody isn't paying more attention to climate. The tragedy in Maui, the rains in New York, things that we just don't see very normally have been plaguing us and have been accelerating the discussion on what, what is really a, a, a series of issues, not just one issue that uh, we are going to have to grapple with one way or another. I am pleased to introduce my guest today. Now, as I told the folks back home wa watching me, I believe that my guests should have their bios read in its entirety. And I also, I'm not going to pretend to anybody to anybody that I've memorized the bio of people like this. So yes, I'm about to read. It is my pleasure to introduce today's very knowledgeable Capitol Hill veteran. Eric Finns is currently the vice president of Grove Climate Group, LLC. He joined the, the company in February of this year after being a 15-year Capitol Hill veteran in the House of Representatives in many capacities. Most recently, Eric was the deputy staff director of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, SCCC, during the 118th Congress. In this capacity, he helped manage a staff of 12 full-time professionals as well as interns. Known as the Climate Think Tank for House Democrats, Eric was responsible for coordinating climate policy with House Democratic leadership, including the standing committees in addition to the White House and Senate. During the 117th Congress, the Select Committee was charged with helping implement the policy proposals including the committee's June 2020 Solving the Climate Crisis report. By the end of 2022, over 300 of the report's 750 policy, uh, 715 policy recommendations had been signed into law. Quite an impressive record. Over the course of his congressional career, Eric has worked professionally for five members of Congress, spanning the Democratic Party both geographically and across the political spectrum, including his time on the SCCC. Eric supported work on the following laws, including but not limited to the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan, the, uh, the bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act, in addition to annual appropriations and defense bills, laws to protect the ancestral lands of Native American tribes, reverse antiquated federal policy that were, you know, sort of inhibiting local economic development related to offshore wind, authorized the creation of a national network of advanced manufacturing institutes to support public-private partnerships, focused on overcoming next-generation manufacturing challenge, something I've done a little work with, and ensure constituents were given due process and proceedings at the federal, at the FERC, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Additionally, Eric worked to solve issues through other means. With SCCC, he co-led the effort to garner 192 bicameral, bicameral Democratic signers on an amicus brief to the Supreme Court's West Virginia e versus EPA case and co-managed the drafting and editing of the SCCC Majority Staff Report entitled Solving the Climate Crisis 2022. 
key accomplishments and additional opportunities. During his time serving on the committee, Chair Kathy Castor and the select committee were recognized as having among the most diverse witnesses testifying at congressional hearings for the 118th Congress. In prior roles, Eric fought to develop bipartisan support for access and funding to civil legal aid programs, legal support for survivors of domestic and sexual violence, and long overdue compensation for victims and families impacted by exposure to harmful materials working in federal programs. Eric has participated in several international staff delegation visits to various countries covering wide-ranging topics of mutual interest uh, with the United States. He received his JD from American University, magna cum laude, and served as a staff member of the American University Law Review for two years. He also received his bachelor's degree from American University in interdisciplinary studies, including communications, legal institutions, economics, and government, with a minor in Spanish. Eric lives in North Carolina with his wife, two kids, and their dog. Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Cliff. That's uh, an necessarily kind um, intro. Well, uh, you know, we have we get uh, guests like you. We want to know that you know we're having a, a top level conversation on a very difficult series of issues. I try to ask questions uh, that I know some of our audience would like to ask. So what I'm going to ask is, I'm going to start off with the basic question. Please, I'm going to ask you to, to try to explain the basic science of climate change to audience. Let, let's be skeptical. How do we know that the climate events that we have been observing, and I referenced the summer and even right now, are really the result of human-generated change that is creating warming and all of its implications? How do we know that it's not a natural change, that it's a human-generated change, that we have to do something about. Sure. Well, that's a great question, and, and you know, I, I'm not a scientist, so I, I I can't speak to the core science here. But we certainly trust the overwhelming majority of scientists that that say our climate is changing. But I'm going to point to there's two key stats that I think are, are critically important. The first is that the past nine years have been the warmest years since modern re record keeping began in, uh, in 1880, um, and that's not a coincidence. The other key stat is um, well, it's a couple, but more than 90% of Americans this year alone experienced a natural um, a weather disaster or, or um, a, a, a climate occur occurrence that was fueled in part, if not in whole, by the climate crisis. And what that turns into is in the United States, just in 2023, and this is sites um, from NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, as of October 10th, there have been 24 confirmed weather and climate disaster events with losses exceeding $1 billion each. That's just the $1 billion events. Um, there's plenty more that are um, below that threshold. And these are everything from drought to flooding to severe storms to wildfire. You just mentioned Maui. Um, that was just a couple months ago. It's resulted in over 370 deaths. Um, and, and I think one key sort of statistic there is um, between 1980 and, and 2022, the average amount of events that exceeded that, and this is adjusted for inflation was 8.1 events. In the five years between 2018 and 2022, that's over 18 events. So we are seeing these storms with increasing severity and frequency. Um, you mentioned flooding at the top of this. Um, Vermont um, had a once in millennium storm 
Um, and they had two of those 10 years apart. Those are supposed to happen once every 1,000 years. Um, so we are seeing the, the, the impact of the climate crisis in every community across the country. And again, that's just the United States, um, you know, not even mentioning all of the other impacts um, reaching every country across the world. Having thrown the science question about you, let's come back to your forte, which is policy. Let's talk about U.S. policy. Has it become more active and aggressive in the, in the climate change area? Has and, and the, 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 that's the general question. The specific question I'll ask is: Has U.S. climate policy been, you know, sensitive to which party happens to be in the White House? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I obviously don't want to get too political here. I, I do think um, the overwhelming majority of Americans um, from all political stripes see climate change, particularly younger voters, see climate change as a top issue. Um, there are lots of top issues, but climate change is certainly at the top. Um, but I will say, you know, this is pretty obvious looking at the whiplash between the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration, climate policy has varied pretty greatly. Um, and you can just look at the Paris Agreement, um, the Paris Climate Accords as an example. In 2015, they were signed. The U.S. was a key signatory, a leading signatory. Um, in 2017, in his first, one of his first acts of office, President Trump began the process of withdrawing us. And in 20. Uh, 21, President Biden did the exact opposite and moved forward. Um, and what we've seen under the leadership of President Biden is um, over $2 trillion in just three years, or um, three bills, the uh, Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the Chips and Science Act, over $2 trillion of federal resources dedicated, um, if not directly, at least tangentially or supporting um, issues related to the climate crisis. Um, so there is that, but I, you know, again, I, I do think it, it's really important to note climate's affecting every community across this country. I think younger voters in particular on, you know, in both major parties, Democrats and Republicans care about this issue and are pushing their leaders, um, to address it. What about the states? Do state governments have a role to play in climate policy? Without question. I mean, you know, what's really interesting, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and this is, goes to the unique way that it was passed through the reconciliation process, which um, is sort of not the traditional law, but more of a, um, it, it provides a 10-year window for these programs to take effect, is it doesn't set any mandate. It doesn't say you have to decrease carbon emissions by X amount. It doesn't say you have to, um, you know, limit global warming to X number of degrees. While those are great goals, and the president, President Biden has, you know, committed the United States to doing many of those things over the next 5, 10, 15 years, um, the Inflation Reduction Act provides, I mean, frankly, it's an unlimited amount of money, but current estimates are about $1.2 trillion um, towards addressing climate change. And many of that is sort of direct and indirect. It's, it's tax incentives, it's grants, it's loan guarantees, but it also depends on how states act and how consumers act. The states... Um, the, the beauty of the Inflation Reduction Act is it allows states to choose how they want to tackle the key climate-related issues that are coming um, in, their, in their state. If it's a transition to electric vehicles, great. If it's a reduction of emissions from their electric grids, sure, why not? If it's talking about adaptation or resilience in, in dealing with the, the effects of the climate crisis, also great. Um, so they have the ability to, to sort of do what works best if, if they're a fossil fuel dependent state or traditionally a fossil fuel dependent state, they have access to a boatload of federal resources now to help in that transition, not only to help clean up the grid, but ensure that the jobs that the fossil fuel industry provided for those communities remain um, and, and create new opportunities for their residents. Um, so I think a lot of it is up to the states and how they can do it. Um, 
but the you know the federal funding, particularly through the Inflation Reduction Act, is intended to be a catalyst for those states to choose how they want to do it to best go. Um, governors and state legislatures know their states best, um, and they can tackle those those issues um, the best way they know how to do it. Now, from what I can see and from what I hear, manufacturers tend to think of the climate change area as something that is going to exact costs on their operations and their profitability, uh, regulations and, and that sort of thing. But are there, within the climate change problem, the, the climate change world, are there also opportunities for uh, manufacturers? I mean, could climate change create opportunities for profitable manufacturing innovation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's really interesting is, um, you know, Transition is always hard. There's always upfront costs. There, there, there's nervousness. You don't know what's coming around the next corner. Um, but that also creates enormous opportunities. The entire world is in the process of shifting um, towards cleaner, greener energy. And that, you know, we're doing that for, for a ton of reasons. Um, but manufacturers are that key role. Manufacturers are going to make that option happen. And, and if we learned anything in COVID, it's that we are sensitive um, to the ebbs and flows of supply chains. Manufacturers are very difficult. The offshore wind industry is a great example for the opportunity for manufacturers here because you know there is no domestic manufacturing capacity for offshore wind for many of those resources that are required. We're currently having to ship over the turbine or the um, the monopiles that are the sort of the the, the big windmill that um, sticks down into the the seabed. We can't manufacture those here despite our you know century plus of the steelmaking industry. So there's a huge opportunity for investment, and we're already seeing that. Um, as a result of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, according to the White House, um, as of the one-year anniversary, so just a couple months ago in August, um, the act has helped spur over $500 billion in private sector manufacturing investments. Um, and that's $240 billion in clean energy manufacturing investments. And that's just here in the United States. Again, you know, the opportunity, if we can develop that next generation industry, particularly in clean energy, there's no reason why we can't export that to the rest of the world and help all countries. Um, you know, we play a leading role um, and help all countries, you know, um, lift themselves up and, and, and work on these issues and improve their own security. Now, uh, one thing about manufacturers is that they're truly global players and they can move. We have we have seen manufacturing jobs and manufacturing capital move around uh, the world. Now, that that at least presents something of a challenge for a U.S. climate policy, because how do you address the, uh, the fact uh, you know, U.S. climate change policies in a world where U.S. manufacturers can can and often do pick up and move to lower cost venues that they see venues as being a, a part of a cost calculus. If they see climate change policies in the U.S. exacting a cost on them, they could leave. How, how do you address the, the tension there? Yeah, th th there, there is a challenge there, but I, you know, th there's a couple of pieces to it. One is I, you know, again, pointing to COVID, some of these issues as it relates to supply chain, and this includes everything from, um, you know, semiconductor chips to our medications to, you know, just general manufacturing supplies. Um, COVID lockdowns around the world impacted that supply chain and fueled inflation. It fueled all of these issues that we were facing over the last several years. Um, but not only from an economic perspective, it was a national security issue too. So there's a lot of focus here in the United States, particularly on the federal policy side, about how do you um, reshore those manufacturing um, capacities, make sure that we have the ability to do it, particularly if there's actors around the world that 
you know, aren't exactly on the same page as us when it comes to, to policies and perspectives. Um, so the Inflation Reduction Act includes a lot of the provisions and, you know, it's, it's fueled significantly by tax credits, which is why there's no cap to how much the bill is actually going to cost because it, you know, a lot of it's based on how much of this um, is, is taken up by manufacturers and consumers um, in, in, in the private sector. And so um, one way that they um, do that is requiring for domestic content. Um, it's requiring for um, investment here in the United States, using United States workers to um, um, to uh, to build and manufacture the the the, the process the um, whatever the good is that they're doing. It's if you um, go into specific communities that are traditionally underserved or fossil fuel communities or um, energy intensive communities, um, there's additional um, tax credits available for those um, those companies. So there's a lot of key areas that um, are incentivizing, which is again why the the White House said that we've had over $500 billion of investment in the one year since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed in August 2022. The other piece of that is we are not alone in the world. We have a lot of free trade agreement partners. We have other partners around the world that, that share our view on um, safety, democracy, the, the need to transition off of or to clean energy um, and, and to limit the impact of the climate crisis. And so there are provisions also in that bill that include um, those partnerships you know, meeting the requirements of the Inflation Reduction Act to ensure that companies that um, are located perhaps in Europe or other free trade agreement areas are able to access those same incentives. Um, so there, there is that piece of it, but, the, you know, it, it's both an economic issue and a national security issue for the United States, which is why those provisions were, were significantly included. Let's let's for a second look at the world in a different way. I've been talking about U.S. climate policy and the climate and inferring about you know that there's different climate climate policies in different parts of the world, but the climate doesn't really respect borders or think about borders. So, given the re the true nature of climate challenges, it it seems to me, and you can tell me whether you agree or not, that any any real solutions to climate change have to almost always be global. Isn't that true? I mean, that was, you know, an incredible part of the, the Paris Agreement in 2015. You had almost 200 countries come together to agree to transition to a clean energy economy, um, which is an unbelievable way of doing it. Now, is it as strong as some would like? No. Is it stronger than others would like? Absolutely. Um, and, and there is a give and take there. I do think in particular with some of, um, you know, the United States partners and, and, and our allies, the, the thinking is that um, there's an opportunity to, you know, focus domestically on areas that have been left behind that are dependent on other, um, you know, other industries that may or may not go away or significantly transition as a result of the transition to a clean economy. Um, but by making our domestic economy stronger, it also allows the opportunity for international relationships to thrive and to build on that technology together. Um, you know, the transition to a clean energy economy relies significantly on critical minerals is a good example. Um, China has the market cornered on the processing of critical minerals, um, but that doesn't mean they always have to have it. The United States has the opportunity to develop a lot of this. We're still mining. Um, here's a good stat for you, Cliff. We're still mining. Our structure, regulatory structure was created at the same time. It was signed by Ulysses Grant in 1872, yeah. right? Like that's the structure for regulating and developing a new mine here in the United States. And, and one of the key issues here, too, is the benefit of that, that there's bipartisan agreement that that needs to be reformed. Um, and if Congress can come together and talk about this issue, I mean, certainly there's the devil in the details that, that both parties have significant differences in how they would apply and reform that law. 
but that's a key issue of, of where we can come together and, and, and come to an agreement. Um, but, you know, there's critical minerals all over the world. They need to be developed responsibly and in responsible ways. And they need to, you know, if the United States can do this right and we can partner with some of these areas in the world, it provides economic opportunity for them. It provides economic opportunity for American companies. Um, it, you know, we can all benefit on this together and make this as least, less disruptive as possible. Um, but it's a challenge, no question. It requires um, mutual trust. It requires communication. Um, in just a couple of weeks, um, most countries in the world are going to join in Abu Dhabi for the um, COP, the Conference of Parties 28, which is the 28th consecutive um, conference on this issue. And, and there are thorny issues to be addressed, no question. Um, but it's one that requires that sort of substantive discussion. And, and frankly, with these bills, the United States can and should and will lead the way on this transition. Think about financial incentives. I mean, again, it, it, it may be changing. I hope it is. But particularly manufacturers and business in general think about costs in climate change. But uh, are financial markets providing some help with incentives? Are, are they rewarding the stocks of companies who are, um, you know, minimizing their carbon footprint? Are we see, starting to see that happen? Yeah, key, key, really key issue. Um, you know, there's been a big drive for climate risk disclosure and, and for companies to understand um, their carbon footprints across, you know, their own um, processes, but also across their suppliers, which is known as scope three um, carbon emissions. There's an understanding of how intensive are the products that they're actually making um, and what impact does that have on the climate. Um, and there's regulatory structures around the world. As you said, companies don't operate in, in you know, one small area right they're, they're they're transnational and they have to abide by all the regulations so you know the Europe, europeans have been leading the world on a lot of this stuff on climate risk exposure they also have a carbon border adjustment mechanism for um, um products that are going in and out of the country uh via international trade um the united states is currently on, having that debate right now the sec is deciding whether or not they want to have climate risk disclosure and and shareholders care about this issue um, if you look at companies that put a strong focus on esg environmental social and governance tactics by and large, those companies that really focus on these things actually do better in the market. It's, it's, it's just a money issue. Um, they're able to account for their climate risk. They're able to account, you know, how exposed they are to this issue and then, you know, identify it and address it. Um, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Um, and so there's great companies out there that are doing this. Um, there's a lot of talk about carbon credits. Um, there's a lot of talk about how do you um, sort of understand these issues and disclose those issues. Um, and so, you know, I think the market is doing it. Um, they perhaps aren't doing it as quickly as they could or, or, or they should, um, but that realization is coming. And, and going back to the top of this call about, or the, the, this podcast about how, you know, everyone's been impacted by this. If you're looking for a home in California or Florida, it's almost impossible to find home insurance. And if you can find it, it's going to be significantly expensive. And the reason is because those states among many others, have been impacted by the climate crisis in, in, in overwhelming ways. Um, and the insurance companies have to figure out how they can be financially viable. Um, the other piece I'll say is, um, as you understand what your climate risk disclosure is, and you can take that into account, you actually have cheaper costs of access to capital because you can get sustainability linked loans or just understanding how you are exposed to the impacts of a changing climate lenders will you know, reward that um, in, in ways because you can account for those things and, and, and de-risk it as much as possible. It is amazing how many of our manufacturing talk radio shows have had a question on electric vehicles. 
lately. <laughs> and but this one is certainly going to be the case now. There's permit. Unless I'm missing something, you can certainly tell me if I am. They are permeating the market rather slowly, still less than ten percent. I think it's eight point six is the the latest number I saw. Eight uh, less than ten percent though of uh, total vehicle sales. Um, if you believe that electric vehicles are going to be an important solution in the American economy to to minimizing our our you know uh, greenhouse gases or carbon footprint. How can we speed that up? I mean, that is, you know, less less than ten percent is you know is too slow at this point. Yeah, it's a tough one, but you know, it is fitting that we're having this conversation this afternoon, as um, it appears that the um, labor unions, the UAW, and 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 all three of the automakers, the big automakers in Detroit, have come to an agreement. Um, so that and that's a big deal, right? Because those automakers are committed to um, transitioning to electric vehicles in the next five, ten years, and entire fleets. Um, and so we need the American workforce to be able to do it. You know, there, there is always going to be a little bit of a lag. Um, first of all, the, the access to electric vehicles on the market can be difficult. They are not always the cheapest vehicles available. Um, that transition is slowly happening. We are, you know, companies are ramping up their capacity and being able to do it. And there's also a public perception issue. It's, it's a real challenge to um, change public perception. There's a lot of nervousness about range anxiety, for example. Can I go on a road trip with my electric vehicle and, and make it to and from a place without too much difficulty? You know, right now, you know, you can drive your normal internal combustion engine, drive it up the highway, stop at a gas station, fill up and, and keep moving on. Um, and so a lot of what the, the, the bills that the Biden administration and, and, and Congress under Democratic leadership pushed was, you know, to create charging networks across the country so you don't have that issue. And it's a challenge. It's slow. It, it, it's coming. But I think as more and more people continue to adopt these things, the technology is constantly improving. We're going to be able to charge vehicles faster. Their range is going to get a lot further and longer. Um, there'll be more options available on the market for consumers to choose what they want. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to be great. Um, and I think there's there's a ton of opportunity here. Um, so I do think it will start to speed up. And I, I think the automakers are still starting to understand what, you know, how can we do this? How can we continue to implement new technology? Um, there are provisions as well in the Inflation Reduction Act that require certain things to be manufactured here in the United States. So that's, you know, you're seeing a lot of private sector announcements. I live here in the Battery Belt um, in North Carolina, and the amount of money that's come down into this section in, in the southeastern portion of the United States and manufacturing capacity is enormous. And we're talking about, um, I think I saw a stat, it was like 62,000 jobs across seven states as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and those are um, not just Southeast, but it's Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Um, and that's a, a, you know, a combination of um, IRA funding, um, federal funding, but also private sector investments. Final question for Eric Finns. Eric, at this point, are you at least relatively optimistic that the world can avoid the much feared worst case climate outcomes that uh, they're always being talked about. I am. I mean, I think we're going to sweat it out a little bit. Um, I think it, we're you know, policymakers um, don't always come to the, the an agreement early in the process. Um, I, I think the challenge is also understanding the difference of meeting that ultimate goal, um, but also in the short term, we're going to still see more and more significant impacts of the climate crisis in our daily lives. We're going to have longer droughts in the summer. We're going to have stronger storms during hurricane season. We're going to have more wildfires. Um, so the actions we take today aren't going to necessarily make everything okay tomorrow or the next day. 
It's a long-term investment. It's going to take all of us to be a part of it. Um, and, and, and I think policymakers understand this and they really need to, you know, how can we keep our eye on that prize of, of the long-term while also not disrupting the immediate economic future of, of constituents and, and Americans across the country? So um, there's that process of investing. There's also that process of building a more resilient um, um, and adaptable um, communities to, to address those short-term impacts that are undoubtedly here and they're going to continue to come. But I do think, um, you know, we have to, if we want to create a, a better world for our kids, grandkids, and the next generations, we don't have a choice, but we got to get this right. Um, so there is a, still a window. The scientists tell us there's still a window to do it, but it takes drastic action. And, um, you know, I think the United States over the last couple of years proved that they're up to the task. Um, I think a lot of other countries are doing the same. Um, but we got to hold hands and do it together because otherwise we're not going to make that goal. Eric Finns, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me in the think tank today. Cliff, it was an honor. I appreciate it. You know, you've been such a great um, ally on this issue and um, we've known each other for a long time now. So yeah, I appreciate the invitation and the ability to join you here. Audience, we're going to return to this. It's only going to grow as an issue. It's going to have big implications for manufacturers. And there are actually, it's, it's not one issue, uh, it's many issues. Until next time, this is say, this is Cliff Woolman saying, thanks for joining me in the Think Tank. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.